Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. He said to them, when you pray, whoops, sorry, I skipped a page. When you pray, say thus, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day your daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forget everyone, forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the t- time of trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, do not bother me. The door's already been locked and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, At least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if a child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? Well, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the Word of God for the people of God. I remember well when prayer changed for me as a child. I had grown up like most children in the church, saying prayers my parents taught me. At meals, I said, bless this food, O God, for the nourishment of our bodies and us to thy service. Amen. Same prayer every night. My wife's family taught her, God is great, God is good, let us thank God for our food. Um, But she was too small to speak well, so she said, gawky, gawky men. They still say that to this day. Those prayers stick with us, those those prayers of rote. At bedtime, I prayed the obligatory prayer that we don't teach children anymore. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. No wonder we all have so many nightmares as children. (laughs) So as a small child, I prayed as I was taught to pray. But then sometime around the age of 12 or 13, I had begun to claim the Christian faith as my own. Not just something my parents chose for me, not just something we did at church when I went there, but my faith around the age of confirmation. And when that happened, prayer changed for me. Words I just memorized were replaced with, well, conversations with God. I would lie in my twin bed, and at bedtime at night, each night with the lights off, I would converse with God, a little nighttime chat. I imagined God on the other twin bed in my room, propped up on an elbow, listening to me intently, the way adults never listen to me. We sort of had these regular sleepovers. In my chats, I would talk about what happened that day at school or You know, what I thought of so-and-so, my friend, or that girl that I had a crush on, or whatever. I would just ramble along. 
which if you knew me better, wouldn't surprise you at all. I would even tell God jokes. I figured God had to listen to you adults complain enough all day long that a kid telling jokes was a great relief of tension. Now, even at age 12, though, my theology wasn't so bad that I didn't recognize God knew everything. So I knew God already knew the punchlines before I told them. I just figured God appreciated the effort. So we would chat. We would laugh together. And then at some point, usually in the evening, each evening, I would tell God what was bothering me, what my problems from the day were. Around the age of 13, a lot of it had to do with things like acne, lack of popularity at school, girls that I was too shy to talk to, things like that. But there were days when I would talk about fights with my older brothers, my mother scolding me when I didn't think she had reason to, and my father's drinking problem. And when I prayed at this point, I would imagine God getting up off the other bed and coming over and sitting on the edge of my bed, taking my hand or patting me on the arm and saying, it's okay, Wes, it's going to be okay. I've got your back. I'm going to make sure everything works out for the good. I remember well when prayer changed for me later as a young adult. I was a college student at a liberal arts school in Birmingham, Alabama, and my world and worldview were expanding incredibly, significantly, quickly. Classes in religion, history, philosophy, science, sociology, art, political science, literature, they all let me see things I'd never seen in Sylacauga, Alabama small town of about 11,000. They all challenged my adolescent ways of thinking, of viewing God, of viewing the world. My adolescent faith, candle of faith wasn't blown out, but now it, it showed me how much more darkness there was around me than I had realized before, how much more mystery there was, how many more things there were I didn't understand. So as college led me to learn more about the world, It also pushed me to become more engaged in the world. The college sponsored volunteer programs that we were expected to volunteer for. And I spent a lot of time at this one homeless shelter in downtown Birmingham, Alabama. We didn't really have homelessness in Sylacauga that I knew of as an adolescence. And here in a much larger city, I saw poverty and mental illness and addiction in a way I had never seen or understood before. And at night, I'd go back to my dorm room and I would pray in bed asking God why this was allowed to be. But God didn't show up in my dorm room and answer me. There was no chatting, no laughing. God was just silent as I asked, how long, O Lord? I started watching the news as a college student, never did that much as a young child. As a child, the news was something my dad had on over there while he read the paper here, and I just wanted to watch Gilligan's Island reruns, and this was getting in my way. But as a 19-year-old, I started watching the news, and 
and started engaging in politics. But I remember two news stories early in my college years that really impacted my thinking a lot. The first one was on the national news and involved an earthquake in South America. In this earthquake, it was a small town that was especially hit and hundreds and hundreds of God's children died and thousands of people were displaced and injured and homeless. And I, I just thought to myself that I, I'll bet plenty of those people prayed as the ground under their feet shook and as the roofs over their heads started crumbling and coming down on top of them. I'll bet those people prayed. So I prayed too. Why, God? Why? Why didn't you answer their prayer? But all I got was silence. The second news story I mentioned was actually on the local news. And Birmingham News was like local news everywhere. You know, there's a house fire talked about. There's a bad wreck on the interstate. They always get somebody to interview that should not be interviewed on the news. But then there was a story about a woman in a poor area of Birmingham. A man had broken into her house had stolen her possessions, stolen her innocence, and finally stole her life. I'll bet you ever, every penny I ever owned that she was praying the whole time she was going through that horrific experience. Where was the God I had imagined sitting on the edge of my bed promising to make everything okay? And I began wondering at 19 years old why a God who didn't answer her prayers would consider my prayers about passing a calculus exam important enough to listen to and respond to. If God hadn't fixed the world by now and all the centuries of people praying to God, why would God fix me, take care of me, put my life together? So I hit a stage where I wasn't sure how to pray. To be honest, I wasn't even sure why I should pray anymore. When you don't know what to expect from prayer, it's hard to know what to ask for. It makes you wonder just a little bit how old Luke was when he wrote that story we just read a minute ago. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to preach. So Jesus teaches them a version of the Lord's Prayer. He offers them a rote prayer there to learn by memory. Something you would do if you're a small child. We learn these prayers, we repeat these prayers. But Luke was not a small child, obviously, because Luke doesn't stop there. He goes on and has Jesus teach them about prayer through an analogy. Imagine needing some bread because an unexpected guest comes to your house. So you go to your next door neighbor and you knock on the door and you say, can I have some extra bread you got laying around? Stale bread's fine. Just give me some of that bread because I've got somebody I need to be a good host. I'm in bed. Why are you knocking on my door? No, no, see, I, I need bread for my friend that came over here. And you've always been a good friend. I know you'll give me, my children are in bed and you're waking them up. 
why are you bothering me? And Jesus says, the friend in bed will finally get up and give the bread to the neighbor, if not because of friendship, at least because you're persistent at the door. Now, that prayer sounds like the prayer of a 12 or 13-year-old. Be persistent and God will answer. Now, Luke recognizes, I think, that there's a little problem here, that it sounds like God will only answer if we pound at God enough. God doesn't care enough to answer others. But that's not the end of the story. Luke goes on and makes sure to say that God is different than us. We might give just if somebody's persistent in asking, but even we know if a child asks for a fish or an egg, you don't give a scorpion or a snake. And if we're evil in the way we give, how much more will God give us when we pray? 12-year-old kind of understanding of prayer. Pray Pray hard, and the God who loves us unconditionally will give you whatever you need. The problem is once you start watching the news at age 19, you know that persistence in prayer doesn't get your prayers answered any more than some once-and-done approach would. Maybe you remember Ronnie Millsap, the, the country western singer, played the piano. I remember hearing him interviewed one day and he was telling about what it was like to grow up blind. And he said that his grandmother took him from tent meeting to tent meeting, from faith healer to faith healer, hoping to get rid of his blindness. And every time there was the altar call, his grandmother would lead him up there and the faith healer would put his hand on him or pop him in the head or apply oil to his head or hold his hands and pray for him, try and cast out a demon of blindness. And every time he would leave those meetings just as blind as he was when he started. So what did Ronnie Millsap do? He started blaming himself. If I had just had enough faith, God would have healed me. If I had prayed harder, God would have healed me. If I had prayed longer, God would have healed me. If I got more people to pray with me, more prayer warriors, I would have been healed. If I had just said the right words, I would be able to see. To say that God will answer our prayers if we are just persistent enough in praying is to blame the victim when our prayers aren't answered and we find silence in the room with us. If prayer did work that way, if persistence got us the answers we want and need, then the Israelites would have never been enslaved in Egypt. The Jerusalem temple never would have been destroyed. No one would have died in the Inquisition. The Holocaust never would have occurred and the World Trade Center would still be standing. If all it took was persistence in prayer, then no one would ever be confined to a wheelchair. No one would ever die of a massive stroke. My father and my grandmother would still be alive. No one would have Alzheimer's. No one would have AIDS. And no baby would ever be stillborn. 
If persistence in prayer worked the way I thought when I was 12 or 13, there would be no racism, there would be no poverty, there'd be no war in Afghanistan, there'd be no threat of nuclear war, there'd be no discrimination against gay and trans people in our denomination. But there are those horrible and terrible things still that are part of human existence. They are all too real. We wish they weren't, but there they are. And I guarantee you, faithful people throughout the history of the world and throughout the history of the church have been praying about them just as you and I do. They've prayed and prayed and we've prayed and prayed and prayed. Yet there is still illness. There is still suffering, oppression, There is still death. Luke's answer sounds like that of an adolescent child not yet familiar with the full realities of a human life. But you see, I did this little thing you didn't catch. I cheated. Preachers do this at times. I cheated because when I just talked about Luke's version of this story, I left out a little piece of it. The disciples ask him to pray, gives them the Lord's Prayer, and then he teaches them. And then he says, he compares, if you evil people know how to give to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give? But that's not the end. It actually says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Luke doesn't present Jesus viewing God as some kind of Santa Claus who will answer our letters. God is not some kind of Amazon that just fulfills our wish list in a day or two when we hit the send button. Luke has Jesus' promise That when we pray, regardless of what we pray about, regardless of what our needs are, God will give us the Holy Spirit. God will give us the Spirit of God. Now that might sound like a cop-out to you, but it is not for Luke. For Luke, this is a very serious matter. Remember, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts. And all through those two volumes, the Holy Spirit is an active presence in the life of people, individuals, and the church. The Holy Spirit comes to Mary at the very beginning of the story, and she is the first prophet who speaks in the Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist prophesies that one will come after him who baptizes with fire and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lands on Jesus at his baptism in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus' first sermon begins with the words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Every time Jesus prays, he prays in the Spirit. Jesus promises his disciples that after he leaves and they are persecuted, the Holy Spirit will guide them in what they are to say. The Holy Spirit comes upon the whole church at baptism following Pentecost. The gift of the Spirit is not something to just be scoffed at as an answer to this question. Luke is saying, 
that we must think about prayer differently. Prayer that results in the gift of the Holy Spirit is a mighty claim and means we should think about prayer that we offer to God differently than we did yesterday. To pray, to pray to God is not to get something from God. To pray to God is to get God. We pray about everything that matters to us, anything that matters to us, no matter how small, no matter how big, and we lay it at the feet of the one about whom we care the most. And God says, I give you me in answer to your prayer. Prayer offers us wholeness by putting everything in its proper perspective in relation to God, reminding us that there is no concern we have that is bigger than God. Everything is relative to the one we call the almighty, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the ever-present, the eternal. God is our answer to our prayers. So maybe Luke was actually a lot older than I was giving him credit. Not a small child, not 12 or 13, not 19. Maybe he was in his 90s like Margaret Julian. Margaret Julian was a member of the first church I served as a college student. I was a student pastor of this little bitty church in Mulga, Alabama, an old coal mining camp. We were, we were overjoyed if we had 20 on a Sunday, packed out the house. I was 19 when I met her. She was 91. You can imagine what level of pastoral authority I had with this woman. <laughs> I went to visit her. She never came to church the whole time I lived there, not because she wouldn't, but because she couldn't. She was bedridden, never left her bedroom except to go to the doctor or the hospital, which she did somewhat regularly. She lived with her son and daughter-in-law and I would go visit and they would escort me back to her room and she would never call me reverend or pastor or parson. She called me honey. Oh, honey, she would say to me. And I would come and we would chit chat about how she was feeling and all. And she loved to read, especially read the Bible. So she would always ask me, read me a passage of scripture. See, the first time I came, I came without a Bible. So she handed me one. After that, I made sure I always had a Bible when I showed up with Miss Julian. So she asked me to read a scripture. I would read it and then she would tell me what it meant. What scripture do you want to hear? It doesn't matter. It's all Bible. I would open up, read, and she would tell me what it meant, usually quoting uh, Dr. Vernon McGee's walk through the Bible, which I was taught in college, terrible source. So I, I would try and say what I thought it meant. She'd go, well, that's nice, honey. And then she'd keep going. She would finish the lesson at some point, however long she felt it needed to go. And with my case, it was often pretty long. And she would finish it and then we would pray together and I would leave. Now, I remember my next to last visit with her. It wasn't in her bedroom, it was in a hospital room. She was now 93. 
and I was 21, so I was much wiser by now. Her heart had just become too tired to keep beating for much longer. Body just worn out. I entered the room and I began asking how she was feeling, sort of our usual small talk banter, but she would have none of it this day. How are you feeling? Read me some Bible. So I had my Bible with me and I opened it up and I began reading some. And it perked her up enough that she taught me what it meant. She took a little while to explain, but not as long as usual. She was tired and she sort of slumped back into her bed after she had taught me. And I thought I shouldn't stay here and make her more tired. So I closed the Bible and I was moving towards the door as I offered to pray. And she said, Wes, I I need you to know something. I'm ready to die. I've outlived my husband by several decades. All my friends are gone. I am a burden to my son and daughter-in-law, although they would never say so. It's past my time. Well, at 21, I didn't know how to pray. In that circumstance, I had always prayed that things got better. Knowing she was going to die as we all did, I wasn't sure what to say. So I, I walked back over and I sat on the edge of her bed. And I took her hand and I said, if, if, if you don't want me to pray for your recovery, what is it you want me to pray for? She got a little strength back at that because she laughed at me. She laughed. She said, oh, honey, have you not learned anything yet from all the scripture we've been reading together? She said, it's not important what you pray. It's just important that you pray. And God will take care of the rest. Amen. Amen.